to a world that I find myself inhabiting just a year before my 70th birthday. This fact is very relevant because it explains where I sit in the world of reproduction and all the associated hormonal activities of a woman's body. I was born in 1954, so the monthly scourge of periods are a long-forgotten part of my life. I could even now be on trend discussing my menopausal symptoms with Rod Stewart, who has been right at the forefront of a campaign that his wife Penny Lancaster is fronting. Its aims are to inform and educate women about the changes their bodies undertake when a woman stops having her periods. It's a natural part of the ageing process and for far too long has been whispered about behind firmly closed doors. However, to complicate my understanding of the birds and the bees that I learnt at my convent school in the 60s, I'm now living in a world that is as alien to me as, dare I admit, remote controls and passwords. I feel as if I have a bit part in the latest adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, and I am free-falling, waiting for the white rabbit to tell me that it is too late, much too late, and that I am actually past my sell-by date. Nonetheless, I find myself fully down the proverbial rabbit hole. It's a land full of tech peeps, running around checking their iPhone watches. I am Alice, no longer in Wonderland, but firmly stuck in Muddleland. I feel like Shrek wading through the bog to reach Fiona, and my Fiona has mysteriously evaporated. It's as if I have just landed through a portal, and it's left me bewitched, bewildered, and quite honestly out of my depth. I'm not drowning in tears as Lewis Carroll portrayed poor Alice, but treading water trying to understand the rigours of in vitro fertilisation. IVF to you and me. Simply, and I assure you the process is far from simple, it's when eggs are harvested from a woman's ovaries and fertilised with sperm. Sounds straightforward to me, but this podcast has been created to explore all aspects of this process. I look at the successes and failures of IVF and to the mental health aspects that are almost as taboo a subject as the menopause. My first recollection of hearing about the miracle of IVF is when I worked with Patrick Steptoe's niece and it was announced that he and his colleagues had successfully produced the world's first test tube baby, Louise Brown, who was born in 1978. I didn't take much notice at the time, but I clearly remembered it felt very futuristic and in line with watching Armstrong and Aldrin land on the moon on a black and white television, or a Time Lord landing on some far-off galaxy in the TARDIS. It was worlds away from mucking out stables and girls getting in the family way that I had been brought up with. At the time, taking the pill was the only innovative invention that had directly affected me and millions of others, and is still one of the most important medical breakthroughs in my lifetime. For this podcast, my contributors have kindly agreed to share their stories. I've been taken on this journey because my son Ollie Locke and his husband Gareth are well known from the reality television programme made in Chelsea and have undertaken numerous rounds of IVF and we are just now at the fingers crossed stage. Their journey inspired this podcast because any children they have will be my grandchildren. They have sold their home, they've flown out to other countries They've chosen an egg donor both in this country and abroad, and all will be explained by them later on in the podcast. I'm a broad-minded woman, and this has been a distinct advantage when I find myself discussing all aspects of fertility with two men in their mid-thirties. 
Nothing is out of bounds, including the length, absence and presentation of periods, the quality of sperm, and how to make sure that the lining of the womb is sufficiently prepped for the embryo or embryos to be successfully embedded in its host for nine months. Oh, and don't let me forget the importance of a portion of McDonald's chips as soon as possible after implantation. Think that I, like Alice, have taken too much of that drink-me potion that she found on the table when she fell down the rabbit hole. Well, I assure you, I have not. But at the end of this journey, I may well have succumbed. And I might also find myself remembering passwords and magically being able to negotiate my way around a TV remote control. Thank you very much indeed for letting me come to your home today. Surrogacy, IVF. I know very little about it and I think by now that you know much more than I do. So perhaps you could open the door and start from the beginning. Over to you. Weirdly, this probably wasn't a subject we would have loved to have been expert on. But I think in the last three years, Gareth and I have both earned ourselves what feels like a doctorate in not only the female anatomy, ironically, but also the process of in vitro fertilisation, which is commonly known as IVF. And it is, to say the very least, a wild adventure. I think something that you think with biology you would think would work quite easily is, you know, it's like one plus one equals two. But I think with the difficulty with IVF and having been successful on our fourth round with finally actually getting pregnant and getting to the eventuality of actually having children. It's not as simple as that and there is just many variables and many things that come together to be able to sort of make it a good relationship with IVF isn't there? Um, in terms of obviously matching biology, obviously processing go down and especially in the UK, the UK itself is quite a grey area for IVF and surrogacy in general because they try to draw back from causing it to be a commercial enterprise. But in doing so, muddy the waters so much that it's, it's often difficult to know where to go. I think it's probably at this point a good place to start um, to say that, yes, mum is interviewing us. Um, and Gareth, my husband, uh, and I have very much been on uh, a TV show called Made in Chelsea for the last... Well, I've done this for 12 years, Gareth's done this for five years. And what is a slightly unusual situation is we are having cameras following us throughout this entire process, all the ups, all the downs, going around the world and discussing our process of trying to eventually have children. And so that's what makes it slightly more interesting by giving and showing some awareness, IVF, the difficulties of, and to try and be hopefully some sort of beacon of light or hope for other people while going through that process. I think we represent what, what we feel we're doing, is we're representing all those people that, you know, it, it can be a very hard process, much like miscarriages or things like that, that people just don't talk about because, you know, the varying reasons why these things can work and why they don't work, you tend to take on yourself and take a guilt on it. I think the fact that we've talked about it and shared it and, you know, it hasn't been a successful journey, but, you know, that's the same as lots of people's journeys, sort of been akin to what other people have experienced and felt, and I think that's been important. So it will open the doors and show other people what you've done, um, so it will give them hope and also maybe unravel the complications and the mystery behind it. Yeah, and especially because one of the things was we, and actually we found out live, well, I say live, we found out whilst filming, that was the purpose of the scene that day, 
and it was the first time we'd done it and you know naively we all thought that you know you go to the best doctor you, you do the best things and that it's going to work and you know and that the reason why it doesn't work sometimes is because people cut corners and that very much is not the case and you know on that day we found out and it was absolutely devastating wasn't it it mm-hmm. was devastating to find out that it, it hadn't worked and it, it had come to nothing and all this effort and all this time and all this all this heartache emotion and you know going through IVF and going down that route to have children you you are very conscious you want to have children. It's, you know, it's not you accidentally get pregnant. It's not you, you try and, you know, it happens first time. We have consciously gone through a process which has taken, you know, seven months to get to that first date of transfer. And in such, there's a lot of emotion behind it. And, uh, and in our naivety, believed that, you know, it was going to work first time. And obviously sharing it, we share all that emotion and the reasons why we felt that way. But lots of people, when it doesn't work first time, they can take a lot of guilt on themselves. And I think I think people f- don't feel that they're represented anywhere and they, they sort of just take it on, on and internalise it and don't want to share it because they, they feel embarrassed about it. And also one of the major aspects I've seen the two of you go through <coughs> is you sold your house to fund the IVF. And at the moment, I think the, it, it's because there is no funding for the two of you to have IVF treatment absolutely right so I think if I want to go back slightly to the beginning because I think that the listeners should probably know for those that are not aware of the process that we have actually been on we got married on the 5th of November 2020 we got married on the 4th of November 4th of November (laughs) (laughs) it's only only been two years and it's already forgotten two and a half now actually um so that's a good start. Yeah, I, I Very good start. I, I won't be expecting the um, anniversary present on time this year. It was after that we decided to get very um, deep into the world of IVF. This is not an easy situation to Google. There is a million different countries, a million different rules. Britain being one that is slightly archaic. And when Cameron announced the fact that uh, men could get married, uh, the rule at that point hadn't been touched for about 22 years about surrogacy and IVF it's still to this day in 2023 still has not been reviewed and they don't plan on doing that until early next year so where did the journey take you then so an interesting start we found I won't name it <laughs> we found a company and there are many of these companies out there and I think for the what did we do what was the first consultation it was 600 pounds for a two-hour chat and yeah. we really they just taught us to suck eggs really and we didn't really get anywhere and then the next steps of them were going to be £3,000. And then I think the whole entire process with them cost like ten grand. At which point we were like, hang on a minute. And we actually went and spoke to some friends, didn't we? A couple yeah. that we know who have been through IVF and successfully gone through the surrogacy process. And they told us everything we need to know. And actually said to us at the same time, we've got to be very cautious of these companies. Because the irony is the UK policy is to not make it a commercial, a commercial enterprise. But it means that for in terms of paying for surrogates because they believe they're taking advantage of people but the irony is that in trying not to make a commercial enterprise there's lots of companies that operate with their grey sort of policy in order to make money by basically just telling you the most basic things that should be readily available there on the you know UK Gov website. The issue is I think with a lot of people is that using a surrogate in Britain however it is legal it's not legal to use one on the NHS for starters it is not legal to solicit one it is not legal to advertise for one 
So it's a really difficult way of trying to find a surrogate unless you go through one of these expensive agencies which is kind of regulated. This is fairly absurd, we feel, as the rules haven't been changed in so long. Luckily, being in the public eye and our story being available to the whole of Britain and Ireland every Monday night, we were lucky enough to get lots of people speak to us and to DM us and contact us via social media about being our surrogate. That we did do, and we found a lovely lady who was fantastic and all the medical bits were perfect. And we decided one of the annoying rules in Britain is that you are not allowed to see the face of the egg donor you choose. So you're only allowed to do that in a few places in the world. There's we couldn't get into America because it was locked down. Oh. So we could get into Mexico. And we found an egg donor from Brazil. And it all seemed perfect. We went out to Mexico for about seven weeks. We landed in Mexico and we waited for our egg donor, uh, who was absolutely amazing. She gave 21 eggs, which was just fabulous. Now, this was a very expensive process. And interestingly, so the way it works is we've had to pay an agency fee, which was $26,000, that is. And then we paid her fee, which I think was another $20,000. No, she was $11,000. She was much better head for numbers. She was $11,000. So we are on $37,000 by this point. And then, actually, this was the case. This is why I think it's a bit more. is because then we had to pay the clinic fee, which was another $11,000, to make the embryos from the sperm deposit. I and think you're forgetting about the fact that we've had to pay for, at this time, four of us to travel out to Mexico as well. So you paid for your surrogate and the surrogate's so husband. Mother. No, mother. Mother, mother. yes. Yeah. She wanted her mother with her and then us. And um, then us and then obviously accommodation and stuff like that. So I think, you know, doing it abroad, it all starts to add up. And then obviously if you're not intrinsically from that place, then it is obviously you staying there, hotels, time out of your normal daily life and things like that. So I think probably the first rounds cost us hundred dollars to $150,000. First and second round, I'd probably say. Maybe just the first round. Probably right. When we came home, we got the incredibly disappointing news that, uh, unfortunately, this did not work. Well, I think, experience I think, I think the, you sort of say it positive from everything, don't you? And at this stage, uh, lots of people were sort of saying, look, we're sharing the entire journey because that's the nature of what we do. At this stage, people were saying, please don't make it look so easy. It's taken them two, three, four, four times to get it to work. And I think the entire experience with that and you know how upsetting it was for us and the positive we have to take is that you know it started us on this journey of knowing and learning about surrogacy and IVF absolutely right I think we just thought it was plug and play as I said earlier at the start of the podcast we thought you know you just throw all the best things at it you use the best people you use the best agencies you use the best egg donors etc etc that it's going to work and it doesn't work because people cut corners and that actually isn't the case biology is a very complicated mistress and I think that, you know, we humans have this thing where we, we quantify things because it, it makes us understand them or it makes us feel like we understand them and that's important for human nature. And the reality is there's so many variables to this and so many pitfalls. We're on this journey to learn all this stuff and, and you know, we were starting to get there. So then it was, the next fun step was obviously we're still going through all the COVID and stuff like that. And then we thought, right, okay, so we're going to go back to Mexico and go for round two, which actually then what were we thinking about that? We're thinking, right, it's going to be expensive. That's going to cost at least getting out there with the surrogate, another 15,000. Uh, however, Uncle COVID came to join the club, um, which was slightly more difficult. Um, and we couldn't get out to Mexico. So we took a very expensive way, which is a 4,000 um, pound transportation by... Um, Career. Flying 
the five remaining embryos from Mexico to Cyprus. So this is the third round of IVF. It's the fourth, fourth round. Fourth, fourth round of IVF. Fourth round. See, I'm not very good at dates either. Um, so, uh, all numbers. When are my grandchildren due? So, this is actually really interesting, because this, this, is, this is actually a point towards our multiple birth. So, because it's multiple birth, it's going to be cesarean, because it's safer, because, you know, multiple, multiple pregnancies are deemed high risk, just by the nature of them. Obviously, you're growing two, whereas people are generally equipped to grow one. Um, and it will be at 37 weeks, which is five weeks earlier than normal 42, on the 18th of August. Um, although our doctor has said there's a 30% chance they come before that, but you know, it's, it sort of just depends on how they're growing, how they're doing in there and, and all that. But yeah, 18th of August. Let's look forward to the 18th of August. Thank you, boys. Thank you. Thank you very much. So all is here today to talk about her mental health issues because she's had... How many rounds of IVF have you I've had? done five rounds over about seven years. Like you said, we were unsuccessful um, at the end of that journey and it left me a shadow of my former self. So you hear a lot about people, you know, the success stories because obviously the clinics really want to like publicize their success. And people obviously as well, when they are successful, they want to celebrate and share that news. Um, but you don't really hear about the unsuccessful stories and the majority of people that do IVF, um, they are unsuccessful and it's kind of hidden and brushed under the carpet and there's no kind of happy ending for women like me. There was nothing wrong with David and I. There was nothing medically wrong. They were like, and the doctors kept saying to me, you are going to get pregnant. And I actually describe that period of my life as being in a state of suspended grief. Um, and just kept trying and trying and trying in the belief that it was definitely going to work for me at one point. I feel like if a doctor had just been really honest with me from the get-go about the success rates and about my chances and like basically made me sit down with a therapist who would tell me, um, this is the journey that you're going to go on and it's going to mentally destroy you. And I, I think I would have, you know maybe decided either to look at surrogacy or look at uh, adoption. But because I had yeah, this, this huge amount of hope attached to myself getting pregnant, and there is like a huge desire in women to get pregnant and have that baby in your tummy and go through birth and you know breastfeed and all of that. And I wanted desperately to have that experience. So it was, yeah, it was difficult for me to separate that and to step away from that in the way that, you know, in hindsight, I would think now it would have, if I had have had all the facts that I have now, I would have, yeah, probably um, adopted and, you know, not put myself and my husband through the, the hell that we went through. You should seek help and you should get support. And it doesn't mean you can't do IVF. It just means that you need the support on that journey to get you through it, um, then I feel like it just would have been so much better. So yeah, I kind of feel like there should be more onus on the clinics, especially as they're earning such huge profits. Sounds as though it's rather like going to the supermarket and buying a tin of beans. Yeah, it's it's very like, um, I felt like- Matter I was, of fact? Yeah, very matter of fact. And like, um, uh, like you're almost on a production line kind of thing because you see a different doctor every time and 
um, it's it's all just really quick, really clinical, just very fast turnarounds. And I thought when I went from um, going from uh, public healthcare to private healthcare, because I did my first one on the NHS and yeah. then I did the four after privately, there would be a huge difference per session. And you do feel a bit like you're, you're being rinsed as well. So yeah, I was yeah very desperate to have a baby. It's yeah. just, it's so mental because I'm, I started this journey when I was 33 and I'm now 43. I'm like, it's 10 years later, like, and I stopped when I was 40. I just, I drew a line because I was at a point where I felt I was either, I was going down a really dark path and I just thought this is going to end up with me um, dead if I continue. Um, and I just still feel like, I was like, when am I going to get to the point where I'm not like devastated about this? Where I'm not like in so much pain anymore. And I've done so much therapy and everything. And I'm just like, it's just destroyed me. Like, like it really has. Um, yeah. Yeah, for me, I was, as I was saying, I was in an, an, an awful state. Um, to the point and I've, I've I've never suffered from mental health issues like at all so I was like I didn't even recognize that I was having mental health issues I thought I was just failing as a woman in general like I was failing to get pregnant I was then failing every single time that we were pumping huge amounts of money medically into me and then I was still failing like my thoughts became really unclear in my head I'm very um I felt like it was like a whirlwind constantly in my head where I couldn't focus on anything. Um, so I would be making dinner and I would just freeze and like it's almost get catatonic, like just staring at the wall. And David would say something to me and I would kind of snap out of it. Or I would leave the house and I'd leave the, the gas, the hob on. Because I just, I couldn't focus on anything. And my head just felt like it was going to explode. And I remember being on the, at the, on the platform at the train station. And um, I was like, oh, there was just this really awful voice in my head that was like, would say things to me. And it would be like, oh my God, Orla, like, look at this train coming in. It's going so fast. If you just put your head out in front of that train now, it would feel so good. It would just clear everything in your head. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. That would feel really good. And so then I'd find myself wandering up to the edge of the platform like, oh God. And I didn't think that I was suicidal in any way because I was like, this isn't about committing suicide. This is just about trying to get peace, trying to clear my head. And same with like crossing a road. I remember a truck coming up really fast and my body, that, that voice in my head going, just step, just step out in front of it. It will feel so good when it hits you really hard. And like the urge within me to do that was almost uncontrollable. Like I was like, ah, oh God, how do I control this? And then when you're in a state where you're getting to the supermarket and you don't even know how you got to the supermarket, you have no memory of like getting from your house to supermarket and then going home and you're like, the gas is on, Jesus Christ. You, you just you're like how am I how am I still alive because <laughs> I feel like someone else is in control now and I don't know who that is and I don't I don't trust them um and I think it kind of came to a head because I was 
going on like this for quite a bit of time, and I was keeping it a secret. Yeah, I was say, were you sharing this with David? No, 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 not at all. Um, I was really keeping it all to myself. Um, I don't know why, but I was having a drink with him in a pub in Ireland. Actually, we went home, and um, he, I was, he was talking, and I was doing that thing where I was disassociating, and he was eventually said to me what is going on? Like, what's going on inside your head? You're just so difficult to connect with. Like, what are you thinking right now? And I was like, right now? I was like, oh, I was just thinking it would be just so nice if you punched me really hard in the face and knocked me down. And he was like, what? And I was like, I can't focus on what you're saying because all I'm thinking is you've got really strong arms and that punch would knock me out. And he was like, Jesus, like, are you thinking lots of things like this? And I was like, yeah, actually. Uh, then I kind of just realized what was going on. I was like, yeah, I've actually been kind of fantasizing or like constantly thinking about all these really nasty things to do to myself. So yeah, I went and um, started therapy for the first time in my life and it, it transformed me, it transformed me. Like, I think the rash I had for like months after one session, and I can't even remember what I'd said in the session, but the next morning I woke up and the rush was gone. Yeah, it got me to where, where I needed to be, where I was feeling a lot more positive, and I started to look forward to the future, and it was the first time in, I don't know, like seven years that I actually was like, oh, up until that, I just kind of saw the future as this um, really white, empty space, and before before when I was younger I always had plans for the future and goals to achieve and things to look forward to but during that period of my life when I was doing IVF it was just so blank there was nothing there and then yeah when I turned 40 and I started doing therapy I started to see hope for my future and a brightness and um adventure for me and David and a life for me and David that I just hadn't seen in so long sorry I'm just like <laughs> rambling on here and the other thing like as I look back at myself and I was like I look younger and healthier and like just better all around now than I did during that time and um, David from his perspective and uh, he just was like she's suffering she's in you know really finding this difficult but because I hid the majority of what I was going through from him and from everyone else that nobody really knew um, yeah and so that's why I was so happy when that therapist said to me oh yeah that's completely normal that's what happens with like the majority of women they hide it and I was like God, that's just so awful. Like, what's going on, like, with these women that are all, like, hiding behind closed doors and, yeah, really hurting themselves? Who knows what they're doing, you know? There's well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to um, make this podcast, mm. because there are so many things that people don't understand. Yeah. Including myself. Yeah. And I'm very touched that you shared this with me today. I'm very grateful because it will see the aspect that nobody ever talks about. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, now you're talking about the mental health implications and it makes the podcast more complete. Yeah. Because I can talk to people about their surrogacy, their pregnancies, their going alone, mm -hmm. all the rest of it, but 
Until I met you, I never, ever, ever thought about the mental health yeah, obligations. Yeah, so well, yeah. Thank you so, no. so much. I can't thank you enough, really. Nick Harvey, this is your life. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to my son-in-law the other day, and I was saying, he's saying, how's your dissertation going? And I said, oh, it's really good. I think I met somebody once who's one of the first people to be born in the world with the IVF process. So, Nick, you're that first person. Please tell me the story. Where do we start? So, I was born in 1985, so conceived in 1984. First one was 1980. 78, 78 I think, Louise Brown, yeah. Louise Brown. Relatively close to that one. I don't know my number, but what I've always been told is that I'm one of the first 100. Apparently, I was invited to go to like a gathering of first 100 babies at some point. But mum and dad couldn't be bothered to go. Not our thing. Fair enough then. So we, we never went to that. And yeah, they, they couldn't have children. So I was third try back in those sort of days. So a substantial amount. And this is what they ended up with. So they were in Worcestershire. So I was in a small village called Wick, just outside of a little town called Pershaw, is where we grew up. It was in Oxford that I was made, I guess is the word, with Professor Robert Winston. So <laughs> the reason I know it's Professor Robert Winston is my dad told me a story when they found out I was successful and my mum was pregnant. My dad just went, yippee, and took Robert Winston down the pub. Fantastic. Right, I'm off down the pub. Brilliant. That's it. We've done that bit. Yeah, left my mum to get ready. <laughs> went down the pub with Robert Winston when they found out. So so did they have to pay for the IVF? Yeah, three times. Three times. Any idea how much? I think uh, I, what they said was about three to five grand a pop. A lot of money. A lot of money back then. A, a lot of money now, of money. but a lot of money back then. Um, and you were born premature? Yep. I was, what was I, six weeks premature or something like that? I can't remember. I was very premature. I weighed about the same as a bag of sugar. So I was kept inside an incubator um, in for a long time before I was actually released home. And have you got the other siblings? Yep. So there's me and my brother. So I've got an older brother, Matt. So <laughs> the way I found out I was an IVF, but depend, depending on who you would ask, my, my father tells me that I was told a long time ago. But, so my brother is adopted. So when he went to university, he was telling people that he was adopted. And so my dad came to tell me, so it wouldn't come as a, oh, so-and-so down the pub goes, oh, your brother's adopted. And I just go, what? So my dad comes in and he goes, oh, no, so he's telling you about your brother. He's telling people that he was adopted. And I was like, okay, am I adopted? Because I have an adopted older sibling. He goes, no, no, you're mine. You were born of IVF. You're a test tube baby. I was like, oh, okay, I'm about 19 at this point. I was about to say, what age were <laughs> yeah, you? Yeah, I was 19. He goes, yeah. They hadn't s- mentioned it before. Well, this is what I said. I said, why haven't you told me before? He goes, I have told you. I said, when? He goes, you were three. I was <laughs> like, yeah. Well, no wonder I can't remember if I was three. He's like, yeah, no, you're a test tube baby. Like, it's, and he said, oh, is that guy from the telly with like, the, the scientist with curly hair? I was like, Professor Robert Winston. He's like, yeah, Professor Robert Winston got you pregnant, got your mum pregnant. And there was a silence, and then he just went, it's my sperm. <laughs> just! <laughs> just! But he was, he was about, like, four foot from me, just staring at me, going, it's mine. I was like, right, okay. And he's like, do you, do you know how test tube babies are made? And I was like, yeah, Dad, I've, done, I've done it at school. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with this, that's fine. And he goes, okay then. And just walked back out of the room. And that was it? And that was it. That was how I found out at the age of 19 that I was an IVF baby. And then when I went to him, I was like, like any more info? He's like, yeah, 
Better Robert Winston down in this clinic in Oxford sort of thing. You're one of the first 100. Just as a, an idle bit. I was like, oh, that'd be quite interesting. Do you know the number? He's like, no, your mum knew that. I was like, oh, okay. So that was that. So I've never found my number out. Mum passed away when I was younger, so. Oh, I'm sorry. So, so yeah, don't know the number. Love to know. There must be a record of it somewhere. I've been exploring the human interest aspects of IVF in this podcast, Trying Times. This has only scratched the surface of how many IVF stories are out there. In the next episodes of this podcast, I will speak in more detail to Kelly, who has gone alone and used a sperm donor to fulfil her dream of having a family, a priest from the Roman Catholic Church, who is morally against the procedure, Leanne, who talks about the choice she and her husband made to either buy a home or do two rounds of IVF. I speak to a director of a fertility clinic who will discuss the science of IVF. And lastly, Bex, the surrogate who carries Oliver and Gareth's twins and my grandchildren to explain the whys and wherefores.